which I've selected for Palm Sunday. This is on page four. This is the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. One other thing, I forgot the Easter Lily fundraiser, but that's really self-explanatory, isn't it? Um, okay, <clears throat> this is John 12, 12 through 33. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come to you for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The word of the Lord. What if I was to ask you to sum yourself up in a sentence? To distill who you were into one sentence to communicate all of yourself. What is the sentence that you would use? How would you define yourself? The truth of the matter is that we are constantly defining people. People define one another. It's interesting when people finally meet me. They've seen my name, Carlos Rodriguez, and it conjures up images of a certain person. And I fit those criteria, but not in the way that they expected. We pay attention to celebrities who spend much time cultivating and manufacturing their persona. But very often, who they are is quite different than that image that is projected through the media. Well, what about this person, Jesus? We're in that stage of life where, excuse me, stage of the calendar, where people are asking the question, who is he? If you're walking through the supermarket, you see all of these new uh, periodicals that are 
saying, who is this Jesus? Time and life put out their particular documents. As people begin to ask the age-old question, you would think it had been answered by now. Well, to some, if you were to sum up Jesus, he would be a great teacher. One who brought great learning and wisdom to this world, but that is all. To others, he's a, a legend. A normal person who, through legend, has built up into this person who's larger than life, but really a caricature of who he was, a confused and itinerant preacher. Some would say that this Jesus is a tool. He's a person that was shaped and manufactured by the church in order to dominate and constrain people, to control them. Well, if we want to learn and know who Jesus is, we need to ask the one who knows the answer, Jesus himself. I'm heartened by the story here of these Greeks who come to Jesus, or excuse me, come to the disciples, and they simply say this, we want to see him. Maybe that's why you are here today. And Jesus answers this question in a very, very interesting way. Jesus distills, if you will, in this picture of who he is. And it is the greatest answer that one could hope for. The answer that Jesus gives in this passage is an answer that's worthy of our heart, worthy of our devotion, and worthy of our life. And so my hope is, as we come together, that we too, like the Greeks, might maybe throw aside our particular assumptions that we have and ask this question. We want to see you, Jesus. Who are you? We're going to look at Jesus through the eyes of three particular groups of people. Number one, the Jews, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and their response to Jesus. And then we're going to look at him through the Greeks. And then finally, I'm going to ask you the question, who do you see as we look through our eyes? So let's begin with the Jewish people. A little background, Jesus is headed to the Passover in Jerusalem. A yearly feast where Jerusalem will swell by the millions. And there is tension in the air as the political and religious establishment want to arrest and kill Jesus. But not during the feast, they say, for it might cause a riot. Jesus is stopped off at Bethany, which is walking distance from Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The place where he uh, brought Lazarus up from the dead, healed him, and they're throwing a feast. Verse 9 says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of, crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, has raised from, whom he had raised from the dead. So Jesus is causing a stir. A crowd is forming. They want to see this Jesus because he's healed Lazarus. And indeed, it says that the religious leaders also said, we have to kill Lazarus as well if we're going to stamp this out. Well, the next day, we see the first original flash mob occurring in verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So these hundreds of thousands of people who are streaming in have heard that this person, Jesus, is coming. And we see that the crowd who has seen, uh, in verse 17, who had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb were bearing witness. In other words, they were saying, they were talking about Jesus. And so this crowd becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and gets way out of control of the Romans 
or the Pharisees. See, the people themselves are looking for their own miracle. They've been under the thumb of the Romans for about 400 years. Rome has controlled every aspect of their life, where they could go, what they could do. And they had come to be waiting and hoping for a Messiah who would come and free them. Not in their hearts, but rather from the political establishment. And so in verse 13, they react to Jesus coming. It says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The palm tree was a symbol of victory. When, a, for instance, an attorney would win a lawsuit or a legal case, he would attach palm fronds to his door. And when a victorious general would come back, he would wear a toga that would be uh, embroidered with palms. They're giving these palms and they're waving them to Jesus. In other words, here comes our victor. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna in Hebrew, the original word for Hosanna, what it means literally is save us. It would have been the same word if you accidentally found yourself falling off a cliff, you would have responded in the Aramaic or the Greek, Hosanna, save us. But slowly it had taken on political overtones and it had instead come to mean Savior. And so what they're shouting is to their Savior, their victorious Savior. Notice they call him the King of Israel, the Soterios. Now the word Soterios was only the name given for the king or the emperor. And so what the people are doing is seditious. It is a revolt that they're trying to start as their king comes. But the palms are supposed to be waved after the battle, not before it. And it says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. When a king rode into a town, he would either ride on two different types of mounts. If it was for war, he would ride in on a horse. But if it was for peace, he would ride in on a donkey. Jesus comes not for war, but he comes for peace. Indeed, the verse where they talk about, Fear not, Zechariah 9.9, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. They don't, it's not read all of it, because if, it contends, if you would continue on, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. But the people don't care. The people want victory, and they want it now. They want to be rid of the Romans. Indeed, verse 18 tells us the real reason why they'd come out, because they had heard that he had done this sign. And so Jesus comes, and they lay their cloaks, expecting him to expel the Romans, and Jesus' next actions befuddle them. For as he sees Jerusalem, he begins to weep over it. Oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known who was coming to you today, but you don't. And then he proceeds to go in and cleanse the temple, to kick out the religious leaders. How dare you turn my father's house into a den of robbers? And you can see the deflation upon the crowd, from bewilderment to probably anger. Indeed, it'll only take a week before they're shouting, crucify him, 
crucify you. The only conclusion we can draw from moving from adulation to hatred is simply this. Jesus did not meet their expectations. I think of some of the scandals that we see in uh, the news today. And uh, these, these guys like Larry Nasser, who was the, uh, the coach of gymnastics, and Harvey Weinstein. And you wonder, how long, why did this go on for so long? Why didn't somebody stop them? Because it was clear that a certain number of people, certainly a critical mass of people, knew what it was that they were doing. And the simple reason is this. They were good at what they did. They did something for them, whether it was for Michigan State or the Olympic Committee or for the film industry. And as a result, because they did what they were, they were good at what they did, people were willing to overlook these other things. See, what was going on here was the crowd really didn't care who Jesus was. They simply wanted to know if he could do for them what they wanted. And when he couldn't, they cast him aside. So why have you come today to see Jesus? Maybe you're a bystander who got swept up in the crowd. It's time to go to church, said your wife or your husband. Maybe you come to see Jesus because he worked a miracle for that person or for that person. He's all-powerful, and now I need him to work a miracle for me. I'm not really interested in who he is, but I'm interested in what he does. So give me victory, Jesus, in my workplace, over my enemies, in my marriage. Give me victory in my emotions. Give me victory in the things that I want, and I'm willing to strike a deal. I'll worship you. I'll raise the palm frond. I'll even throw down my cloak as long as you give me what I want. But Jesus does not do deals. Jesus came for something greater than our wants. He came to give us life. He came to rescue us from death and Satan. You see, in the end, there's only one valid reason to worship Jesus. And that is because he's worthy. He is the true king. He is the one who we were made to lift up and bow our knee to. And to worship him for any other reason is to make an idol out of Jesus. Do you know that your Christian worship can be idolatry? They weren't looking for the true <laughs> Jesus, and so they never saw him. But this brings me to the second group of people, the Greeks. Now you wonder, what are these people doing here? Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip and said, sir, we would wish to see Jesus. Why are the Greeks at a Jewish feast? They would be called proselytes or God-fearing Greeks. Even though they didn't belong to Judaism, they recognized and knew that the one true God was the God who resided in the temple. You see, as they had gone through the pantheon of all the gods of their culture, and there were many in the Greek and Roman culture, none of them was the true God. And so they came. They were there because they wanted to see. They wanted to know who this one 
Jesus was. And so they come and they ask. And Philip, hearing the answer, went and, the question went and told Andrew, and they went and told Jesus. And it says that Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now this is a very strange answer, isn't it? Normally, when someone comes and says, we wish to see Jesus, or wish to see you, and somebody delivers the message, you say yes or no. But it clearly says that Jesus answered. What is this answer, which seems to be unsatisfactory? But it's really quite satisfactory. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to tell you, Greeks. I'm going to show you who I am. It is very significant that in the book of John, which is in 21, chap which is in 21 chapters, we're only in chapter 12. And yet the rest of the book of John is devoted to the last week. It's devoted to describing his death. Jesus says here that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Numerous times when Jesus is referring to the hour, it's always about his death. And indeed, verse, uh, the, the last verse talks about the death. He's indicating the death by which he's going to die. Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you in how I give my life away. How strange that Jesus would say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We do not connect death and crucifixion with glory. And yet Jesus does. What does that mean, glorified? When we think of that word, we think exalted or lifted up. When a king goes, he uh, ascends to his throne, right? The only reason this is up this way is so you can see me and hear me. It's not to exalt the pastor, but it is to exalt the Lord. There are numerous passages. In fact, as Jesus answers and shows his answer, he refers to three different Old Testament passages explaining what it means that the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The first is Isaiah 6.1. And the reason we know this is because just in a couple of verses, Jesus will specifically refer to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah seeing a picture, actually, of Christ. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and so on and so on. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is the kind of verse we think about when we hear about glory and exaltation and being lifted up. But Jesus is speaking about something deeper than simply seeing him in his glory. Jesus is speaking of his death. Verse 24, right away Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying is, yes, you are right in seeing me as the high and lifted up one much like the stalk of wheat that is above the ground. But it is alone. And unless this wheat falls to the ground, falls to the earth, and brings life, 
There will only be death. And so what Jesus is saying to us is that he is the exalted one who has fallen to the earth. Who has come to the earth. Who has come to go into the soil and die. Because he is not content to remain alone. His aim is to bring much fruit with him. It's true that Christ has come. The reality, biologically speaking, is that the seed is not dead. It's actually alive when it falls to the ground. Because it must bring life. Jesus is the living one who's come to the earth to die. Because he's not content to be lifted up alone. He wants to lift us up with him. Well, Jesus talks about Isaiah 6, but he also refers to Isaiah 52.13, the suffering servant song, where it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And immediately it continues on, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that the children of mankind. This exalted servant is the one who will be whipped, is the one who will receive the crown of thorns, is the one whose shoulders will be dislocated, is the one who will be scourged in such a way that people will be horrified when they look at him. Simultaneously high and lifted up because of his willingness to suffer. It goes on, so that he shall sprinkle many nations. To sprinkle means to wash them, to make them clean. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told of them, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. A new king will come and reign in such a way that all other kings will shut their mouths. The truth of the gospel will demonstrate him as the king of kings. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace, that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus is explaining, this is what glory is. The time has come for my glorification. For dying for my people. For the true king protects and watches over his people and will do anything to ransom them. To kill the enemy. And so Christ has come. Indeed, he continues on, doesn't he? Now is the time. Now is the judgment of the world and the ruler of this world, Satan, to be cast out. He has come to defeat the enemy. You know, there's one other place in the Old Testament where somebody asks to see the glory of God. It's Moses. Remember on the Mount, Mount Sinai? Show me your glory. Already God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses said to this one, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask him, 
Ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And say this also, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What is God saying? He's saying, you're right, I am the great exalted one. The very one who has created everything. But I not only, I am, I am for you. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as I have been for them, Israelite people, I will be for you. And so on the mountain, when Moses says, I have to know who you are, show me your glory, show me your essence. God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is about to proclaim his name. And remember back then, one's name is the essence of who they are. It is their sentence, if you will, the one definition. And so the Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And as he passed by, proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in covenant love and faithfulness, keeping covenant love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilt of those who hate me, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the fathers and the children and the children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now, if I had asked the question, show me your glory, God, my expectation would have been this, that as God descended, the fireworks would begin, and the rocks would shatter, and the sky would roll up like a scroll, and the thunderous greatness of the Lord in such a way that it would be deafening, and I would fall to my knees. <coughs> but how does God show his glory? He shows it in his character. He shows it in his name. And what does his name say? Abounding in covenant love and faithfulness and keeping covenant love for thousands. Meaning I'm a faithful God and the promises I make, I keep. That is who I am. And so what is Jesus really saying to these Greeks? And what is he really saying to us? Because we do ask the same question. Yes, God, we know you are the great God. We know who you are. But who are you to me? And who are you to us? And Jesus is essentially saying in this answer, and I will make all of my goodness pass before you. As I ascend that hill to the cross. And as I proclaim, not simply with my word, but with my hands and feet, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness, 
rescuing and redeeming my people who are slaves to sin. I've been able to see some unbelievable cathedrals in my life as I've journeyed around the world. In England, I've seen Westminster Abbey, a magnificent cathedral. The cathedral in Durham, England, built in the 1200s. You could take a tennis ball and throw as hard as you can and never reach the top. I've been to the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth, the place over where the announcement to Mary was, a magnificent, beautiful church taking decades to build. I've been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built over the tomb of Christ. A magnificent building, thousands of thousands of tons of stone and glass and beauty. But there is one thing that every single cathedral, if you go into them, has in common, no matter how high and how exalted. In the middle of them, there is a cross. In fact, it's the only reason the cathedral exists. Because it's in the cross, that humble death, that we truly see the greatness of the Lord. So what do you assign your glory to? The magnificent world with all of its beauty and its opulence? Money and all that it can buy? Riches and fame and fortune? Or beauty and what it can bestow on you? Jesus is exactly to you what his cross is. Jesus is answering the question to the Greeks this Palm Sunday. He's answering it to us. How far does your love and faithfulness extend even to a sinner like me? And Jesus' answer is this, no matter what, at the cost of my death, even if necessary, I will stoop down to lift you up. It is not enough for me to be high and lifted up while you go down to the grave. And so I will fall. I will die. I will conquer the enemy. And I will rise again. Do you want to see Jesus? This humble Savior? He's a living Savior, by the way. If you go to the tomb, you won't find him. For he is risen. I guess that brings us to us, right? Because Jesus answers who he is. The time has come for me to be glorified. In verse 25, he says to us, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What Jesus is saying is if you are happy with the treasures of the world, if this is enough for you, then keep it. I'm not the Savior that you're looking for. But if you mourn for your sin, if you long for redemption, if you long for restitution in your relationship with God, if you want to know who you are and what you were made to be, then follow me. Follow me into the grave. Die to yourself that you might live to me. Forever loses his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Jesus says to the Greeks, do you want to know who I am? Watch and follow. Come, take up your cross. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Praise God that we don't worship a king high and lifted up who's not willing to come down into the dirt, who's not willing to bend his knees to stoop and lift us up, who's not willing to lift us on his shoulders and cleanse us through his blood. So if you want to know the true king, don't just look to the cathedral. Look in the center. Look to the cross. For the cross shows his character. It shows his name. It shows his love. It shows his hope. Let's pray. Your answer, O oh Lord, is the best answer. The time came for you to be glorified. The hour in which you demonstrated through your cross your character. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love, keeping your promise to give life to anyone who would call upon your name. I pray today that each and every one of us would recognize and see you for who you are. That we would trade our false gods for the true God, the true King who dies and gives life to the world. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.